Okay, great. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back serving in this capacity at CFC. I'd, I'd like to say back by popular demand, but <laughs> no. Um, in truth, I'm back by the gracious invitation of Pastor Lucas, and I'm indeed grateful. I'm also always aware of the humbling privilege and responsibility of preaching, as it is written in 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, indeed, uh, let these words sink into the, uh, the ears, the eyes, the hearts of those who hear it. And may we respond in a way that honors you, Lord, and again, just continue to grow in grace and in knowledge of you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when Pastor Lucas invited me to preach, uh, he said the topic was wide open, so I believe I'd been led by the Spirit to address through prayer a universal issue that applies to everyone at one time or another. And since we've just come through a year that could at the very least be described as unusual, this issue has certainly become more acute to one degree or another to virtually all of us. And at this point, I want to ask everybody to bear with me for a little bit because um, I want to disclose as a part of my recent testimony to explain the background for this message and its introduction. It comes from my ministry over the past five years with Koinonia House National Ministries, uh, prison ministry, uh, you know, to inmates, uh, released inmates, their families, and their churches. And many of you heard me talk about this ministry and what a blessing it's been to me. Uh, my wife, Carol, has also been very helpful and has also been blessed by this. In 2015, Manny Mill, the ministry's founder and co-director, wrote a, wrote a book titled Radical Prayer. The book was inspired by a revival in his own prayer life, which by his own admission had been very minimal and a very low priority. Uh, the incident which provoked his renewed view of prayer was that his wife survived a serious car accident. I read the book and identify with the parts about having a shallow and mechanical prayer relationship with our great God, and this moved me to want to deepen my own prayer relationship with the Lord. At various times in my walk with Christ, and even before I was saved, I have longed for a deeper, fuller relationship with him. And this book was a huge help in ways I, I couldn't imagine that I'll eventually explain. Radical Prayer is based on Luke 11, 1 to 13, where one of Christ's disciples asked him, teach us to pray. And it's the only recorded teaching request the disciples ever made to Jesus. Manny began to teach about prayer from this book in Scripture at the weekly Thursday night meeting known as Radical Time Out, or RTO, a, a support resource for former inmates, families of current inmates, and former inmates, and people who are just interested in helping the ministry. It's a ministry where we, uh, we share a meal, pre-pandemic, <laughs> fellowship, worship and song, Bible-based teaching and prayer. And I might add that relative to Pastor Lucas' recent sermon, this group does an excellent job with corporate prayer, praying as a body. And as a result of Manny's renewed prayer life and the success of the book and the teachings, a decision was made by the ministry board of directors to incorporate a once-a-month teaching known as the School of Prayer, where a board member would uh, teach for about 15, 20 minutes uh, about some element of prayer. And upon hearing this, I was moved to want to contribute and asked if I could be included in the teaching rotation. And to my joyful surprise, both Manny and the RTO coordinator said, yes, of course. So I also knew that writing and teaching these lessons would teach me more about prayer and a deeper, fuller relationship with God. So several months into the school of prayer, the other teacher had to leave because of a family commitment and that left me as the sole teacher to provide a teaching every other month. So for almost three years now, 
I've been writing and teaching these lessons, learning and applying so much in the process. And as I had just mentioned, the Radical Prayer Book turned out to be a blessing to me in ways I, I had never foreseen. And it's an answer to my prayer to go deeper with God. So in my earlier teachings for a school of prayer, I consulted a, a few well-written, well-written um, aids for books you know, to help with prayer. And it's a good thing to have these. And again, I'm, I'm really blessed that uh, they have been a help in my prayer life. But I found out that as I, the more I studied, the more I wrote and taught, the more I taught, for I was convinced that the best prayer book going is the Bible, God's Word. And for at least the past two years, I've been teaching about actual prayers that are written in the Bible, prayers that are written so many years ago and lands far away from here in a much different culture than ours, yet are still as relevant and applicable to the human condition as ever. As we learned in our series on 2 Peter, it's good to stir you up by way of reminder for the efficacy of God's word. So today's lesson is drawn from one of those more recent lessons, and it resonated with many of the attendees at RTO the evening it was taught, addressing that universal issue that applies to each of us at varying degrees in our lives at one time or another, and that is trials or suffering. The title of this message is Praying Through Trials, Psalm 13, How Long, O Lord? Spoiler alert, we're going to be in with some bad news. However... As God so directs in his kingdom, the bad news has got to be delivered before the good news. If you've ever purchased a diamond, you know that the diamond salesperson usually shows you the diamond against the dark black background. So <laughs> that light shines through in, in opposition to the darkness. And we live in a sin-cursed world where people do hurtful things to each other, to themselves, and more importantly to God. This is certainly not what God wanted when he created Adam and Eve in the perfect paradise known as the Garden of Eden. God gave Adam and Eve everything they would need to live in the garden in perfect harmony and joy with God and with each other. And he gave them only two commands. First one being, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1.28. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of that you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17. As we all know, they disobeyed the second command and the virus of sin entered the world. Yes, sin went viral. and The sufferings and trials were born and this has affected every living person who has walked or walked this earth ever since that day. As Eliphaz told Job in 5.7, when man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. The presence of sin and its consequences has also continuously infected the operational process of the earth and sky and, and the physical conditions of man and woman. That's outlined in Genesis 3. And also the flood of Noah's time. All this to say that all of us have been and will be affected by sin, either as perpetrator or the victim. Living in a sin-cursed world, that's the sources of trials and tribulations. Stuff happens, sometimes awful stuff. The question on the floor is, how do we deal with this in a God-honoring way? Now the good news. God knows this. He wants to help us and will not leave us in the place of suffering forever. Although we don't like to hear it, he most often will not relieve us of our trials quickly. He has reasons for this. So you ask, what are they? More often than not, he will not immediately make that point clear. His word, the Bible, however, does give us counsel as to his purpose. James 1, 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if the trial is a result of your sin, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Hebrews 12, 5-6. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, 11. Now, while those verses offer some consolation, some of us believers may not even be aware of them, and some of us may even memorize them and know them, that doesn't exempt us from experiencing anguish from those events or things that happen, trials that seem to make no sense seem to have no direct connection to sin. God seems to offer no information or any kind of hint or clue as to why this is going on. But that's his prerogative. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to God. He is sovereign. So how do we deal with trials, uh, whether we're aware of their purpose or not? Some common ways are we cry, we become angry, we convince ourselves to ignore or deny them, Talk to a close family member, pastor, or friend. Withdraw or isolate. Blame yourself, even if it's not true. Take a drink or a drug, possibly to excess. Go on a shopping spree, spend money. Look at pornography. Consult a biblical or psychological counselor. Read a book. Maybe on the subject of trials. The best action we could take, however, is to go to God in prayer. If the trial is particularly difficult or incomprehensible, we will most likely ask God questions. Like, why? Why did you let this happen, God? As mentioned earlier, God doesn't necessarily answer that question. Look at the example of Job in the Bible. Here's a man who had it all. He had property, he had cattle, he had a great family, he was a godly man. The devil comes to him and says, I want you to afflict Job, take all this away. So God does. And then even, you know, takes away his health and he's left covered with sores on a pile of ashes with three friends who keep telling him all the time this was his fault, even though it wasn't. Job asked why at least 13 times through seven different chapters. God never really gives him an answer. Just a series of questions to him, to Job, over the final four chapters, affirming his sovereignty and his prerogative not to answer. Questions which Job can't answer. Another question we might ask is, why me? My research showed that no one in the Bible asked this specific question. I'm not sure it's a good question to ask, because it might apply that you're telling the sovereign God that he got this one wrong, that he ought to have allowed this trial to be upon someone else, not me, even if it was response to my sin. Am I trying to direct God in his affairs? It's just the clay telling the potter how to shape the vessel, as it says in Isaiah 29. In my estimation, the one acceptable time you can ask, why me, is when it comes to your salvation. And you say, why me? Why did you save me and not somebody else? I mean, that's a recognition of God's sovereignty and election and salvation, and in effect, an expression of awe and gratitude. One question that God's people frequently asked him in the Bible as they struggle with trials was, how long, O Lord? Notably in the Psalms, where it's asked at least 13 times. In fact, four times in Psalm 13, the passage we'll discuss today. 
in my own life, long before I wrote this message, I was well aware of the how long, O Lord, question in the Psalms. And I can't tell you how many times over a seven to eight year period, which just ended last year, I asked God that question in the midst of some extreme financial difficulties that I went to. It was constantly, how long, O Lord? But I realized it was a good question to ask instead of why, or why me? The Psalms have always been a good comfort to me during all times of my life. It's where I learned to ask that question. John MacArthur writes that the question, how long, is a common exclamation of lament in the Psalms, which is a natural response or reaction to, to trials. To clarify, our English word lament or lamentation comes from the root Hebrew word despairing. It's also interesting to note that this Hebrew word comes from the name Lamech. It's first seen in Genesis 4. He was the first man known in the Bible to take two wives. Would that be a cause for despair? Just asking. Lamech was also the father of Noah, another example of God at work executing his sovereign plan in the midst of what seems to be a bad situation. But I digress. Many instances of asking how long in the Bible are a lament in relation to trials. In the Psalms, this question is asked by David, Asaph, Ethan, and various unknown psalmists. In the Bible, we can find out a lot about David's trials and his response to them. He faced several great trials in his lifetime. The first one, of course, was when Saul was pursuing him with the sole intent of killing him. Some Bible scholars believe that that was seven years of his life of constantly being in pursuit. Can you imagine? You live seven years with somebody always somewhere behind you whose sole idea is to kill you? That certainly was a trial. Then, of course, there was his adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. The results being her pregnancy, the attempted cover-up, the set-up murder of Uriah in battle, the death of their child, the rebellion and death of his son Absalom. There was his wrongful decision to take a national census, which greatly displeased God, who chastised and disciplined David accordingly. And these last two trials were a result of his sin. So one of the psalms that David wrote to lament his trials was Psalm 13, where the psalm's title asks the actual question, How long, O Lord? We don't know the specific trial David is facing, but it appears to be an enemy who is opposing him. Now, if we want to get the slides up, I want to and turn to your Bibles to Psalm 13, and we'll read the passage. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In six short verses, David goes from heart-rending lament to joy in song. This psalm is an excellent example of a pattern of how to pray through trials. We would do well to pray it out loud and follow its pattern in these ways. First, come to God honestly, as David did. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Yes, we know God is kind, gracious, loving, and merciful. Yet he allows trials in our lives that cause us much pain 
And since we are in relationship with him, we can question trials in this manner. It's as if we question the security of our relationship with God our Father. Deep down, do we really believe that he'll keep us mired in trials forever? We lament the unknown amount of time that he will allow us to be in the trial, working through the process, getting it out of our system. So we'll most likely begin with a point of exasperation and desperation with God, implying that he has forgotten us and will leave us in this state forever. Now, some thoughts about being angry with God. Yes, you may be in an incredibly long trial, going through multiple trials, one after another, which could truly tempt you to become angry towards God. I've seen people go, oh, God, I'm so angry at you, but I don't believe this is a beneficial option. God's word says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James 1, 19 to 20. This is sage wisdom, because in a majority of circumstances, our anger is unrighteous and sinful. Think about all God has given you, regardless of the number of trials you have to endure, such as forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ, the promise of the heavenly reward eternally when your life in this world is ended, the promise of the care of Christ, who has said, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Matthew 10. Always be aware of all that he has done for you and will do for you. The trials you endure will not change that. Remember, too, that nothing of what he allows is wasted. There's nothing wasted in God's economy. It's all used for his sovereign purposes. And he may not tell us the reason until much later, as when we arrive in heaven, or he simply, again, may not choose to tell us for reasons only he knows. You really do not have any substantial reason to be angry at God. You can, however, contend with him and engage him through the range of your emotions, as David does in this psalm. Second, let God know how difficult it is for you to endure in your heart and soul as you struggle with the identity of your great frustration. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You may be racking your brain day after day for the answers to this and not sure if anyone can help you or maybe you think, hey, I'm the only one that's going through this. You are trying to do it by yourself, not making any progress and experiencing constant sorrow in your heart day after day. You most likely may have an enemy in your trials, whether it's a person or persons, or a situation like finances or unemployment, a sickness or a disease, a stronghold sin like drugs, alcohol, gambling, or pornography and sexual sin. You don't want the trial to overtake you, cause you to sin or further sin if the trial is a result of your sin. You don't want God to be dishonored or to present yourself as a bad witness to one of his followers. Again, no matter how difficult it seems, you can come to the Lord in your frustration and sorrow, as David illustrates in this verse. Be encouraged. Matthew Henry writes, The bread of sorrow is sometimes the saint's daily bread. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself was a man of sorrows. Think of the trials he endured while on this earth. While on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Third, after you have voiced your struggle and anxieties, let that drive you to the Lord in prayer to seek answers and or relief or consolation. Verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. 
This is a plea for God to sit up and take notice. Vine's Bible Dictionary defines consider as to be aware, to be conscious. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines consider as to treat in a kind or thoughtful way. David's saying, look at me. Look at my struggles. Please give me an answer or an indication that you're helping me. When he asks God to light up his eyes, he's asking for God to give him vision and sight. The vision of God and his perfect sovereign ways to see beyond the trial and the sight to navigate it to God's glory in his day-to-day living. Confident that the Lord will bring him through. He wants this vision and sight to be made known to him so he will not be so overcome by the trial that he might die because of it. Matthew Henry writes, I cannot live under the weight of all this care and grief. Nothing is more killing to a soul than the want of God's favor and nothing more reviving than the return of it. Fourth, ask God to help you to be victorious over the trial so that your victory represents his victory, that he ultimately prevails, not the enemy. Verse 4, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Again, the enemy may be a person, a sickness, disease, the death of a loved one, prolonged unemployment, financial difficulties, a wayward spouse, child, or other difficult relationship, stronghold sin, or even supernatural, something allowed by God through Satan or an evil spirit. A person who has a good and continual relationship with God would not want God to look bad if the trial to prevail, giving the enemy a cause to celebrate and diminish God. Victory or even relief would provide testimonial evidence of the goodness of God, giving notice to enemies and encouragement to the skeptics. Fifth, as you continue to go to God and contemplate his goodness from your Christ to him in the previous two verses, remember the times he has cared for you, verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He wouldn't have made it this far if it hadn't been for his love, mercy, and grace. An old gospel song proclaims, I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me. If you're not sure exactly how his love, mercy, and grace has helped you and rescued you, we will explain. At the beginning of this lesson, we notice that we live in a sin-cursed world, that in the beginning God created a perfect world. Adam and Eve disobeyed his command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the result was entering of sin in the world, upsetting the perfect order that God had created. God also demands a price to be paid for sin, a price that requires blood. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. God's word, the Bible says, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them, Genesis 3.21. This was the first instance of death in the world as those animals had to be killed. Their blood shed in order to give the skins to Adam and Eve to cover their newly awake nakedness and shame, which was the result of their sin. God also pronounced the sentence of a difficult life for both Adam and Eve, difficulty in obtaining food from the ground, pain in childbirth, strife in relationships, followed by death. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.16. Now yet, in the middle of those pronouncements of punishment, God showed his love, mercy, and grace. First, he delayed the death sentence. 
Adam and Eve did not die that day, but God allowed them to live and made provisions for them to continue. Second, God also began to unfold his plan for man to be able to be restored. The passage of the Bible, this is the beginning of that plan, Genesis 3, 14 and 15, might be hard to understand because it's described in symbolic terms, but God makes it plain and easily understood through other parts of the Bible. Galatians 4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And also, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, sins, made us alive together with Christ. And for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is your not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 4, and 8. Yes, God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to this earth as God became man to identify with us in our human condition. But he lived a perfect life, never even committing ever one sin, showing us how to to live, how to obey the law. He then gave himself up to die for us by a crucifixion on the cross to pay that blood price for our sin. He then rose from the dead three days later, looks like I'm going back over the creed again, to secure victory for us over sin and death. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be forgiven and saved. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.9 God's offer of salvation is available to all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 Notice this verse says, whoever believes in him. Eternal life is not only a length of life forever, but it's also a quality of life, one that has no sorrows, no tears, no sickness, no sin, no suffering, no death, but companionship and joy with God and one another forever. Please be aware, though, too, that there are consequences and punishment if you reject or refuse God's generous offer. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Psalm 19, not Psalm 9, verse 17, King James. Hell is a real place, a horrible place, a place of constant torment and suffering with no relief. And banishment from hell also lasts forever. No second chances, no do-overs. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You will be saved from the wrath of God in hell and welcomed into his kingdom of joy and peace, along with others who also believe. We know that while we're waiting for heaven, we will still live in a sin-cursed world, but we can rely on his spirit, his peace, and other fellow believers to help us in our trials. So if you've not made that decision today to give your life to Jesus Christ and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and to be spared from the wrath of hell and to be welcomed into the joys of heaven, please make that decision today. Sixth, now that you've established your salvation and position in God through Christ, or have used this opportunity now to review it and renew its blessings to you, you can come full circle through your trials to actually have the joy of the Lord in them. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Verse 6. Did you see that? David begins his psalm with a lament, crying out to God in desperation, and ends it by singing. What a reversal. Many psalms of lament are written this way beginning with one of God's people crying out in pain and anguish, and then remembering who God really is. 
and what he has done for us, is doing for us and will do for us, then going, no, going away joyfully knowing that despite present circumstances, which may have been going on for a long time, we are in his sovereign care. And this will end well, either in time or eternity. That's the answer to the question, how long, O Lord? It will not last forever. And if you are his child, saved by faith in his son Jesus Christ, it will end very well. Even our great God, and knowing this, you can encourage others who are also struggling through trials. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with we ourselves are comforted by God. In conclusion, pray this prayer out loud during your prayer time when you're going through trials. Understand that God knows. He hears. He cares. He answers in his sovereign, perfect timing. A.W. Tozer writes, Whatever may befall us, God knows and cares as no one else can. He cites the poet William Blake. He doth give his joy to all. He becomes an infant small. He becomes a man of woe. He doth feel the sorrow too. Think not thou canst sigh a sigh, and thy maker is not by. Think not thou canst weep a tear, and thy maker is not near. Oh, he gives us his joy, that our griefs he may destroy. Till our grief is fled and gone, he doth sit by us and moan. Finally, rejoice in him because he has dealt bountifully with you. He always has and he always will. He is sovereign. He is faithful. Amen. Hallelujah. We could have the last slide up there. There are copies of a transcript available of this uh, message um, upon request. Father, we thank you again for uh, the proclamation of your word and how um, it absolutely helps us during our time of trials. Lord, you tell us exactly what we need to do. And if we are faithful as you are faithful, you will bring us through. And uh, again, we thank you for this comfort and joy that you give us through your Lord, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.